I'd like to read the first four verses, and then I will skip to, the, uh, to verse 46 at the end there. Our focus for the sermon is verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you saw to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. A very common phrase, which I'm sure you've, you've heard and you've used, the phrase, praise the Lord. It's a phrase that you will hear when something good has happened and someone wants to acknowledge that goodness, they'll say, praise the Lord. But it's also a phrase you will hear when things are not okay for those whose theology is correct. Things are going difficult in their lives. They will say, praise the Lord. And so in the face of all the suffering that you and I might go through, unemployment, unfair treatment at work or at home, school or in our neighborhood, in the face of serious financial struggles that you might, you might have, when non-Christians seem to excel when you seem to be barely making it, when you lose a loved one, is there a reason to praise the Lord, to say, praise the Lord? In the book of Psalms, uh, three or so times where this book, this word uh, praise is used, I mean the different words, uh, it appears so many times, but the different words that are translated praise in our English Bible, the, in all the instances where it occurs, the word or the phrase praise the God, praise God simply means to give him the recognition that he deserves. It means to exalt God or exalt his name. It means to lift up his name. And if you are looking for an illustration, uh, you could think of Job. He's lost everything. And he's come literally to the end of himself. And the Bible says he, he, he shakes himself up and uh, he says God has gave and God has taken away. Naked I came. 
uh, naked will I return in my father in, to, in my uh, naked I came from my father's womb my mother's womb naked will I return and then the last phrase blessed be the name of the Lord if you are looking for an illustration of of this idea of giving God the recognition that he deserves that I look beyond myself that yes I'm the one in these circumstances but because God is higher than I, that I say, praise the Lord. Now, the answer to the question I asked you, in the midst of all this, would you still say, praise the Lord? Will be influenced by your understanding of the difference between thanksgiving and praising. Or the difference between thanking God and praising God. And what's the difference between the two? Well, the simple difference is this. We praise God for who he is, and we give him thanks for what he has done. So when we think of praising God, the focus is, remember I said, recognizing who he is, exalting his name, exalting him. The, the, the focus is because of who he is. But when we say we are thanking God, the, the focus is for that which he has done for us. Though both praise, praising and thanksgiving each have a specific objective, as I've just alluded to, they nonetheless overlap in their purpose, which is worship. Because the ultimate purpose of, of both whether you are saying thank you God for what you have done or whether you are saying Lord I praise you for who you are the purpose is worship and it's because of that brothers and sisters that regardless of our circumstances if we fail to praise God, if we fail to give God the honor that is due to him, if we fail to exalt God in those our circumstances, the issue is a lack of worship. That's what the issue is. We, we, in other words, we are not respecting God. We are not honoring God. That's the issue. When non-Christians oppose God, when they say no to God, the issue is not because I have seen so many Christians who are a bad example. The issue is not even because, you know, I don't think God loves me. The issue is a lack of worship. Because Isaiah 43 verse 7 tells us that we were all created for this one purpose, to give God the glory, the honor that is due to his name. When you think of Psalm 89, it is not certain uh, when this psalm was written or even, even more clearly, I mean the timing and, and all that, but most scholars are agreed that at least one thing you can be sure about concerning this psalm is that it was written during one of the most difficult times of the nation of Israel. In fact, some think it's probably has to do with the Babylonian captivity when they were taken into captivity. Whereas most of the Psalms uh, begin with uh, complaint or prayer and then they end in joy or praise, this Psalm here 
begins by recounting God's former favors, begins by praising God, and ends in serious grievances. I think I just did read for you as the psalmist come to close this. He says, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? And so that would be the, the, the difference in the, in the way that this psalm will end. Matthew Henry, uh, the commentator, commenting on, on this psalm, uh, says, and I would like to quote the brilliant words, and may God help us to, to listen not only with our ears but with our hearts, that as we think about our Christianity, that this is what becomes our life. He says, I quote, The psalmist has a very sad complaint to make of the deplorable condition of the family of David at this time. And yet, he begins the psalm with songs of praise. For we must in everything, in every state, give thanks. Thus we must glorify the Lord in the fire. We think when we are in trouble that we get ease by complaining, but we do more, we get joy by praising. Let our complaints therefore be turned into thanksgivings. And in these verses, we find that which will be a matter of praise and thanksgiving for us in the worst of times, whether upon a personal or a public account. End of quote. I would like to speak to you on the subject, God's faithfulness, a reason for praising him. God's faithfulness, a reason for praising him. And obviously, our sermon title begs an explanation of, of two words there, the word faithfulness and the word praise. And it is these two words that will guide my two observations uh, that I have here. The first observation what we must know about God's faithfulness. What must we know about God's faithfulness? Well, first, we must know that uh, when we talk of God's faithfulness, the truth is that God is reliable, no matter what your circumstances might be. That God is steadfast and unwavering in his love for you. He is trustworthy. That's in fact the literal translation of the fact that God is faithful. He is trustworthy. You can trust him. You and I will try and lean on each other and will be disappointed. I'm sure you found out uh, whether it be family, whether it be friends, whether it be even church, church family. But you lean on God. That's the idea of trustworthiness you will not be disappointed. He's trustworthy. In chapter 89, verse 1, that's the idea there when he says, I'll sing of the steadfast love. The other versions will say, the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations, your trustworthiness, your reliability to all generations. Verse 5 he says, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. 
verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And then verse 30 there he says, If his children forsake my law, referring to David, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. And here is the good news, 33. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be forced to my faithfulness. God can do no other. He cannot disregard himself by promising you an everlasting love and all of a sudden changes his mind. So even in the midst of your sins and my sins, that which he has committed to, he says, I will not be false. I will fulfill what I've said. The Bible explains this word faithfulness a number of ways. First, we know and we've seen here that it's an attribute of God. It's who God is. It's, it's not just that God um, shows faithfulness. No, God is faithful. It is his attribute. But also the Bible speaks of faithfulness as a positive characteristic, characteristic rather, of some people. There are some people, there are some Christians who can be described in terms of they are faithful. They are faithful. I, I, I'm, I'm sure you've had your own share of uh, sometimes even in the family of God, people that, you know, you, you can't trust. You know, uh, a story I heard uh, a preacher saying, you know, you, 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 you've agreed to meet with someone at a particular place at a particular time and another member of the church comes and says, hey, uh, what's happening? Oh, I'm waiting for X or Y. And say, uh, he said, you meet here? He said, yeah. And then they just laugh. And say, oh, I, I wish you all the good luck. I hope they come. What, what, what are they saying? They are not faithful. They are not trustworthy. The Bible speaks of some people who lack this virtue. But also the Bible speaks of it as a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so if you wonder why non-Christians are unfaithful, we wonder no more, dear brothers. But as an attribute of God, it's important that we first dispel the wrong notion of what it means that God is faithful. And it is this notion of thinking of God's faithfulness only in terms of what it does for us. Whether as individuals, when, when we begin to describe or to, to define God's faithfulness, our focus is, uh, you know, God has been faithful to our family. And our focus is, you're just thinking of how you are blessed with a baby, and then how the, the husband who didn't have a job got a job back. If, if that's all you think, it's a wrong notion. And, and, and sooner or later, you find yourself in trouble if that's your, your, your explanation of God's faithfulness. Even as a church, when we think of God being faithful, it's, 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 it's a bit dangerous to just think in terms of what he does for us. 
you know, is, uh, we've planted these churches, now we, uh, Kapiri, this has happened, and this. If that's our description of what it means that God is faithful, I would like to dispel that wrong notion here in a moment. And why is this a wrong notion? Why should we not think like this? Well, it leads me to the second thing we must know about God's faithfulness. So the first thing we must know is that he's trustworthy. If you forget all the words, remember that one. He is trustworthy. Or here's another one, reliable. You can depend on him. But second, God's faithfulness is a sure foundation for our steadfastness in his goodness. What, what, what I mean by that is that our conviction for the fact that God is good must be anchored in his character, in who he is, and not just in what he does for you or for me or for us. His faithfulness is the sure foundation who he is, the fact that he's trustworthy, is the sure foundation for you and I, regardless of our circumstances, to remain steadfast and say, God is good. In Hebrews, for example, you can turn with me there, 13 verse 5 uh, to 6, we, we read these words there. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 to 6, the Bible says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You obviously know what is suggested in there is the fact that uh, come to a place where you find joy in what you have. In other words, even if you don't have more, be content. In that context, listen to, to this. With what you have, for he has said, he, why must I be content? Why must I be okay even though I don't have more? Why must I be okay even though I will never have more? It's because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is who God is. This is, this is his promise to you and to me as his children. When we judge God's goodness by what he does for us, we are in for trouble when he takes away those things. Have you ever thought about, um, uh, let's go to Genesis 18. We'll read two verses there. What it would have been like for Abraham to be tested this way. In, in Genesis 18 verse 14, and then we'll go to 22, we find this declaration from God, this promise from God. It is as though God is saying, what's your problem, Abraham and Sarah? Don't you know who I am? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The literal translation in the original language is, is there a word that can come from God and never be true? Can God say something and it doesn't happen? That's a ritual rendering there in the original language. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, you, you, you understand the circumstances of these brethren, and when this son comes, you can only, I don't know if you can even imagine the joy. The, it is the way we say, you know, finally, at last, 
Oh, okay, wait a minute, Abraham. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Take your son, not your neighbor's son, eh? your son, or in case you think he has four, your only son, Isaac. God, are you mocking your servant? What, I mean, okay, why not just say, take Isaac and sacrifice it? Why does this test have to go through this reminder? You are even reminding me that number one, this is my son, and number two, this is my only son. And number three, listen to this, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. You have to have a different anchor after that, other than the fact that I'm so, I'm so loved by God because he gives me stuff. You have to see beyond the giving of stuff or the giving of children. At this point, you have to have another reason in God for you to trust him and for you to say he's good, other than just he gave me Isaac. There has to be another reason, brethren. So we find our anchor, our conviction that God is good, regardless of our circumstances, must be found in the fact that he is faithful. God's faithfulness is about who he is. It's about his character. You don't need to turn to these verses. I'll read them for you. Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Lamentation 3, 22 to 23. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassion never fell. They are new every morning. And then the last phrase is the song we just sang. Great is your faithfulness. My brothers and sisters, it is this character of God that is our comfort in our most difficult times. Isaiah 43, verse 1 to 3, we can quickly read together there. It is this character that is our comfort in, in those our difficult times. In Isaiah 43, it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. I tell people, you can never be lost in any chaos or confusion. Never. You are known personally. Yes, do you mean even when uh, we should be thinking God is in Ukraine and Russia trying to sort out issues there? Is it possible with all that confusion and everything that's happening for me personally to be remembered? Yes, that's what the Bible is saying. That I've called you by name, you are mine. He knows you personally. And then he goes on to say, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
The I there is Jehovah, the self-existent one, the one that needs nowhere to lean. This is the one saying, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord, your God. Brethren, it is this character that superintends even over our failures. If you go back to Psalm 89, I hope you remember. Even in those times when we don't seem to please God with our lives and things are not going the way they should go, here is what he says. Let me pick it up from verse 29, Psalm 89. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my, my lips. That's what we must know about God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness. That was um, uh, very unusual, a long introduction, explaining the word praising him in that first point. And now we come to that verse one I said is our focus, how we must respond to God's faithfulness. So we've seen how what we must know about his faithfulness. It's the fact that, you know, we can trust him, we can depend on him, we can rely on him. But now, how, we must, how must we respond to this faithfulness? It's important to note that exhorting God, giving him the honor that is due to him, worshiping him must be an inevitable response to God's faithfulness. So first, we must sing of his faithfulness. That's what the psalmist says there in verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. That first part there, we must sing of this faithfulness. The psalmist says he will continue to exalt God's honor, convinced of God's steadfast and unchanging love, that God has promised to love me forever, that God has promised to care for me. And so even when things don't look like they are going well, I will exhort his goodness. I will sing of his goodness. Matthew Henry advises uh, concerning this verse and, and the idea of singing. And this is what he says I caught. Sing a praising song of God's honor. Yes, a verbal song, but much more by life. Sing a present song for your consolation and comfort. And here he gives uh, the example of Job chapter 2 verse 9 to 10 and chapter 1 verse 20 to 22. Sing a present song for your consolation, for your comfort. And then third he says, sing an instructive song for the edification of others. 
And this is what precisely leads me to the second thing we must do. First, we must sing of his faithfulness. We must, like Job, come and say, Praise be the Lord. Blessed be your name. I, I can't see everything clearly from where I stand, but I know for sure you are faithful. And because you are faithful, it will all turn out well. But second, we must spread this faithfulness. We must proclaim this faithfulness. And that's what he says to in verse 1 there. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. In other words, yes, I am convinced that I am under the watchful care of your eye. But it will not end there. I want the other nations, I want the other people, I want my neighbors, I want my workmates, I want my family, I want my church family to know that God is faithful. That's the point there. When he says, with my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And if he's going to do that, he's going to be faithful to his immediate generation influence his own family, his own children so much that out of them it trickles down to many, many generations to come. It shouldn't be like what we read in Judges where we find that uh, now there were people who did not know God. How did it happen? Where was the break? What happened? There, there were people now who didn't know God is good. Should we have people in our families? Our children, our great-grandchildren who won't be able to say God is good? What will be the issue? What will be the problem? It will be because we did not spread that faithfulness. Joseph Stowell in a book, uh, far, by, far from, from God, far from home rather, he says, and I quote, The most powerful statement you must make to a watching world today is to assert by word and deed that your God is worth of your affection and allegiance even when you ride through storms and do not seem to be blessed as others. End of quote. He's saying there that as Christians, we must live our lives in such a way on a daily basis, regardless of your circumstances, on a daily basis in such a way that people can see by our words, by our deeds, that my God is worth of the honor and the glory even when things around us are not the way they should be. I will say, my brothers and sisters here, that many Christians in our day and time are such an embarrassment when it comes to their response to trials. They show no hope, and as a result, they fail to attract non-believers to the kingdom of God. When they are going through trials, the whole world will know, and they will complain, and they will cry, and they will abandon the same God to whom they must run. When you visit them in their home and say, we haven't seen you in church for a long time, what could be the reason? The very reason why they should be at church is the very reason why they are not at church. 
It's sad. I'm going through a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties, and this and that and that and that, and, and, and you go on. Brethren, God, Joseph Storer again, God will never bring your life, bring into your life something that he cannot transition to, number one, to his own glory, number two, to the gain of his kingdom, number three, to your ultimate good. Never, never. Now, the reason I say that is based on who God is. Is it always easy when we are going through? I, I, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just a mouthpiece of God saying, God has promised that you can be happy in this life when you realize who he is and what he's up to in your life or in the life of our church. God will never bring anything into your life. And so if you have this mindset, let's go to Philippians, then you join the Apostle Paul to see your circumstances in different light than we normally do. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me now, what has happened is that he's in prison. You know Philippians is a, is a prison epistle. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Did you, did you hear that? What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. In that quotation I read for you, God will never bring anything into your life that it does not transition to the gain of his kingdom. And the Apostle Paul continues to say, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The Apostle Paul how did they come to know this? Obviously not if he was just seated like this. Paul, what's happening? Uh, you know, I, I was doing some good out there and here I am. They would not. It's because with joy, as we read elsewhere, him and Cyrus, beaten badly, and in the night they burst in songs. They are praising God. It's because he, 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 he opened up to them why he was there. He, he, instead of wanting them to pity him, he felt pity on them, and so he could not leave the prison without them hearing the gospel. But there was something more. And most of the brothers... Having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, I'm much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is a mindset that does not see trials as a disaster. This is a mindset that sees trials as God's instrument in our lives for the furtherance of the gospel, and not only that, but that it might be honored and that ultimately for our own good. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, 
that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's a mindset, brethren. Thinking of the fact that God is faithful and we, we rejoice in this faithfulness. You sing of this faithfulness. And yes, not only sing of this faithfulness, but you want it to permeate the lives of others. You want others to know God is faithful. And the psalmist says, with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness. The fact that you are trustworthy to other generations. My brothers and sisters, as a church we must remain unshakable in our convictions about the faith that has been passed on to us. In the midst of all the difficulties and sufferings, I do not know where Zambia is going, but my guess is as good as yours, that probably it will not be like this all the time and always. I was teaching at LMC yesterday. If what I heard is true, I didn't hear it myself, but somebody said that uh, the, the, either a law has been passed or a law is being passed that we shouldn't spank our children. Um, I haven't heard that, but one of the students mentioned that. Well, the homosexual agenda and, and, and the very fact that Zambia is one of those nations that so badly need finances, I don't think life will be the same way it has been. You better brace yourself up. We better start preparing for the times to come. And should God allow for us to face even difficult times than we have ever known, will you sing of God's faithfulness? And will you proclaim it to others? Why must we remain unshakable? Well, we've seen the results. We have the results among us. Changed lives, committed servants, joyful Christians. We've seen it among us. And so it's time to hold on unshakably to that which we have received. We must remain resolute, unshakable concerning Jesus' last command of love. That when we suffer, we don't retaliate because that's contrary to our master's character. We must not forget that Christianity's full package is both belief and suffering. It's those two. I'll read these verses and I'll be closing in a moment. Acts chapter 14 Verse 21, the Apostle Paul, uh, during his ministry, this is what we read of, of him. Verse 21 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, I, I hope Revelation study is coming, coming alive for you. 
that between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, as long as, to borrow the words of Pastor Sam, as long as those horses are out there, as long as those horses are out there, no one should lie to us. Yes, not even the national, the international bodies like UN or there's no one who's going to bring peace. We have more of the worst times and more of it. Every day that passes is a depletion. Things are getting worse than they were the other day. The, your, your very self, myself, you are depleting. You are not the same you were this morning as you are today. The loss of energy is a depletion. When you can say, I'm tired, I want to remind you, something has just changed about you, whether you believe it or not. Philippians 1 verse 29, the Apostle Paul says the following. Philippians 1 verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Christianity's full package is both belief and suffering. And so, yes, recount and be thankful for all that God has done. I didn't say we shouldn't thank him. But also, praise him, exhort him for who he is. It is that balance that helps you when the once upon a time thanksgiving can't stand anymore because they are gone or the staff is gone. That helps you, it's that balance that helps you to handle this. That you can say, God, you are faithful. And you can spread that faithfulness. The reason for your smile in those difficult moments, the reason for my smile in those difficult moments ought to be God's faithfulness. Ending where we began from, in the light of all the sufferings that we go through, unemployment, ill-treatment, whether it be at work, at home, neighborhood, difficult neighborhood, serious financial struggles, whatever your case might be, fill in the blanks. Will you praise him? Will you anchor on his faithfulness? The reason for why your answer must be yes is because it's not just about you and me. This faithfulness of God is intended to be passed on. As we exhibit it in our lives, others are encouraged, others are strengthened. Okay, God is good. I must go on. Amen.